the reading of the scriptures from Psalm 29. So I invite uh, your hearing uh, in faith and with uh, joy as we hear uh, the word of the living God. Psalm 29, a psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. The uh, chief uh, duty of uh, all of us that are Christians uh, in the church is, of course, to worship, uh, worship God. In our psalm this morning, David will uh, tell us uh, why we are to worship God. Uh, the uh, particular psalm this morning is uh, categorized as a psalm of descriptive praise of the person and work of God. It's also a polemic against Baal, who was the god of the storm. David's going to tell us who the real god of the storm is. But again, popular Canaanite uh, religion, uh, Baal was the god of the storm. It's also, I think, a polemic against the gods of Egypt. Uh, the, uh, the controlling metaphor is a storm uh, that is seen in the phrase, the voice of God, the voice of the Lord. The phrase is used seven times uh, in uh, uh, the psalm. And in particular, it is the voice of the Lord creating or causing a storm, which uh, is uh, itself a metaphor of judgment. Uh, this, I think, is confirmed uh, by the book of the Revelation, where there are, are, as you know, seven trumpets, seven seals, seven bowls, and seven plagues. There's no question that uh, John the Apostle, writing the book of the Revelation, uh, used uh, Psalm 29. Uh, to fashion the great judgments of God uh, being poured out upon the world. And it's done, again, in the voice of God seen in a violent storm. God speaks, and storms attack as a reminder of coming judgment, uh, and also, uh, as important, a need for refuge. Because judgment and refuge uh, must go together. If there's only judgment, none of us have any hope whatsoever. 
And uh, David will speak to those uh, two reasons as to why we should worship God. Uh, The movement is quite simple. The power of God in judgment is seen in a storm, verses 3 to 9, as a reminder of his grace to his people, verses 10 to 11. But first and foremost, we have a summons uh, to worship God in verses 1 to 2. Uh, It's a call to worship. Every Sunday morning we have a call to worship. Uh, Here in the psalmist, uh, there's a reason why. Uh, There are four verbs uh, in the call to worship, the first two verses. All four of them are commands. Uh, The subject, uh, interestingly enough, uh, captured for us in the phrase, O sons of uh, the mighty, uh, is an address to the angelic host. It's an address to the angels. They're being summoned uh, to the worship and praise of God. And they are to accord him glory. As you know, the word glory is based upon the concept of that which is heavy. And that which is heavy uh, is oftentimes very valuable. And so they are to accord God the value, the worth, uh, worthy of uh, who he is. Uh, And they are to accord him strength, the supremacy of the power of God that's going to be displayed uh, in this psalm, in the simplicity of a storm. You and I in Oklahoma are familiar with storms. Uh, I think we're about finished with tornado season. I'm not so sure, but uh, again, incredible damage to property, damage to life. If we were on the coast, uh, uh, we would acknowledge uh, the destructive power of hurricanes. And the great floods, I mean, we're experiencing that all over the United States, the great floods, the God of the storm is nothing more than the voice of our God reminding us of judgment, the supremacy of his power. And that in praise, uh, heaven advances his reputation uh, of of the majesty of his power. Uh, The final imperative that speaks so beautifully to us, worship the Lord in holy array or priestly attire. Uh, You and I, as uh, Christians, are to mirror what goes on in heaven. What's going on in heaven in this psalm is the worship of the Lord because of the majesty of his power in the presence of a storm and in the provision of a refuge, the only refuge. And if the angelic host is worshiping God, we're to copycat what the angels are doing. You and I live in a copycat society. Nothing in itself wrong with that, but sometimes there's much wrong with it. But in this case, we're to copy what the angels are doing in heaven. If the angels worship God, guess what you and I ought to be doing? And that's right, worshiping the God of the storm. And that you and I are to come set apart, namely holy, to engage the one true God, in the greatest of all enterprises, namely the worship of the one true God. There's an analog to this in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 29. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in holy array. You know, we could uh, tape that to our mirrors that we could read every day. And it would be a summons for each of us to worship God every day because he is entirely and completely and totally and absolutely worthy.
Uh, what follows the summons to worship uh, are two reasons to worship. The first, verses 3 to 9, the power of God in a storm, and then uh, verses 10 to 11, uh, the graciousness of God in providing a place of refuge or safety from the storm. So the first reason, again, the voice of God, as I mentioned earlier, used seven times, a repetitive phrase, the voice of the Lord. The metaphor is a storm with all of its power and wind, rain, lightning, and thunder. And the storm is His voice as a manifestation of His, of his power. Uh, Psalm 29.3, The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord upon the many waters. It's an allusion here in my own mind uh, to Exodus chapter 7. Uh, and I say it's an allusion to Exodus 7 because of the phrase, upon the waters. Uh, as you know, the context, Exodus 7, uh, is the confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. But it's more important than that. It's uh, the gods of Moses and Pharaoh. Or in the case of Moses, the only true God. In the case of Pharaoh, the many false gods. That's the contest. It's a contest of wills. And who's going to win the contest of will in Exodus chapter 7? Pharaoh was uh, the incarnation of the sun god. Uh, and God destroys him and mocks him by hardening his heart. Uh, we don't really have time to go into this today, but uh, the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh uh, was a, a way to stop his entrance uh, into his own heaven. Uh, very interesting, the phrase, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. To prevent him from going to his own heaven is a display of the power of God. Uh, Fifteen of these instances of God hardening his heart are an explicit reference to God as the cause. Uh, in the other five, there's an implicit reference to God as the cause. So there is no question whatsoever that Pharaoh's heart was hardened by the one true God. Pharaoh is a phony God, a false sun God, and he has met the one true God, and God destroys him, as he will every, every false God and every believer of every false God. Uh, let's look at uh, the text in uh, Exodus uh, chapter 7. Uh, and in particular... Uh, going to read uh, verses 17 to 18. Thus says the Lord, uh, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water. The New American Standard has the object, the water, but the, the Hebrew Bible is literally the same phrase from Psalm 29, upon the waters, that God's going to strike upon the waters. That is the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the Nile will die, and the Nile will become foul, and the Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking water from the Nile. Uh, the Nile was a river god in Egyptian theology, Hopi. Uh, but God is sovereign. God destroys uh, the god of the Nile. Uh, turns uh, uh, this Egyptian deity into blood that became foul uh, because there is no... Uh, river God. Uh, there's the God of every river, and that's, of course, our God. 
uh, but he is destroying all of the gods of Egypt. Uh, the, uh, the storm of verse 3 is, uh, is also, I think, uh, an allusion uh, to Exodus chapter 9 in verse 23. Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky, uh, and the Lord sent thunder. The New American Standard reads thunder, but the Hebrew Bible uh, is literally sounds. The sound of the voice of God, captured in the word thunder. The Lord sent thunder, and hail and fire ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail uh, on the land of Egypt. In Egyptian theology, Seth was the god of the storms. God has just destroyed Seth because there's only one God of the storm and that is the God of Moses. That is our God, the true God of every storm. Men was the God of fertility and was acknowledged at harvest because the storm God would bring rain, the rain would cause the crops to grow, uh, but, but God uh, defeats men uh, and he exposes all these gods as false and more importantly, unable to prevent God from saving his people. It's the whole point of the array between uh, the God of the scriptures and the gods of Egyptian theology. Pharaoh wanted to keep the people so that they would serve him and so that they could build places of worship for their own deities. Uh, didn't want them to go, but guess who won the battle of the wills? God did. God always wins. It is impossible for God to lose in every confrontation between the one true God and all of the false deities of the world, whatever they might be, whatever their name is, wherever they are located, will all be destroyed and their worshipers with them. There's the point of understanding that the God of the storm is our God and he speaks in judgment he should cause us in our hearts to think about a place of safety and a refuge. There's another beautiful illustration of this in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 27, verse 1. Uh, God uh, is the God of the sea and the rivers. Isaiah says in the 27th chapter, in the first verse, in that day the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. Reminder of the, of the majesty of the only God who destroys and kills all of his enemies and saves his people. There's also another beautiful illustration of this in 1 Samuel. Uh, as you know, uh, the early part of... Uh, of uh, the book, Hannah is uh, childless uh, and bitterly disappointed. Uh, and there is no fertility God save one. Uh, but God gives her a son. And uh, she praises God in chapter 2, in verse 10, in the language of a storm. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. 
Against them He will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and He will give strength to His King and will exalt the horn of His anointed. Hannah is praising God for the gift of a son in the language of uh, the God of the storm. Uh, It's a reminder again uh, that all of the deities all over the world, even today, when people... uh, go before their idols and ask for fertility in their crops and fertility in their families. It's a false enterprise. It's a wrong enterprise because it's a wrong God. There's only one, and that is the one true God of Scripture. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10, The Lord is truly God. He is the living God, the eternal King, before whose anger the earth quakes, whose wrath the nations cannot endure. When he utters his voice, there's a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. I love that phrase, from his storehouses. It's like God has this great storehouse, and when he commands the window to open, storms strike the earth as a reminder that God is the God of the storms and creates this terrible destruction as a reminder that there's a greater storm yet to come and to pay heed to the refuge uh, that God alone can give. Uh, Another uh, allusion, uh, I think, to Psalm 29, uh, Exodus uh, 19, uh, in verse 16. Again, the vocabulary is from the storm. So it came about on the third day when it was morning, there was thunder. It's the English translation, but it really sounds. And we know it's thunder from the context. We know it's thunder from the storm. Uh, But it's literally the word used in Psalm 29, the sounds of the Lord, the voice of the Lord speaking in thunder and lightning and flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. They were terrified of the greatness of God, of the majesty of God expressed in the power of the storm, that God comes in terror, warnings, and judgment for those who break His covenant. Uh, it's also, I think, an allusion to 1 Kings uh, chapter 18. Another contest uh, between the one true God and uh, the false gods that the children of Israel uh, had begun uh, to worship. Uh, The battle of the gods between Elijah and Ahab. 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, Ahab, as you know, has turned uh, the children away from God and God sends a drought. Because God is the sovereign Lord of nature and the environment. Uh, and, and, and by the way, all of our prognostications in America about destroying the environment, it's not to say we should be irresponsible, but it will only be destroyed when God is finished with it. It's an affront to God to think that we could destroy his creation. But that's the nature of false gods and false beliefs. And again, 
I'm not opposed to environmentalism per se, but only as it references the one true God, and that we ought to be responsible and accountable uh, to manifest His glory and the beauty of His presence in the entirety of the creation. Uh, but Ahab has done the worst. He's turned the children of God away from God. And so, Elijah challenges Ahab's God to a trial by fire. Uh, 1 Kings 18, in verses 25 to 29. Again, the reason for the illusion in my mind uh, is because in the first case, uh, the gods of Baal have no voice. God has a voice. It's the thunder of the storm. Uh, let's look at the text. 1 Kings 18, uh, verses 25 to 29. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourself, and prepare it first for you, uh, for you are many, and call on the name of your God. Put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice from Baal. No voice. And no one answered. wonder why that is. Because there is no Baal. And they leapt about the altar which they made. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice. For he is God. Either he is occupied or gone aside or is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. And so they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. And it came about when midday was past that they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice and no one answered and no one paid any attention. And then Elijah prays to the one true God. Let's look at two verses. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Verse 41. Now Elijah said to Ahab, Go eat and drink, for there is a sound, literally voice, sound of the roar of a heavy shower the voice of the Lord, the God of the storm, the one true God. So that God answers in a rain, a violent storm to end the drought. God brought it and God ended it because He is the God of the storm. The key is that God destroys false gods and He will destroy all of their worshipers. Uh, the call to worship in heaven by the angelic host is reminding us of who God is and His only provision in a place of refuge. Now, verse 4 of our psalm. Psalm, again, returning back to the Psalter. Uh, verse 29. Uh, uh, the voice of, of God in the storm. The voice of the Lord, verse 4, is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. Uh, verse 5, He breaks the cedars of Lebanon. I mean, you and I have seen this, a measure of it. Uh, tornado rips through Oklahoma City, and we can go to our favorite parks and see that massive trees are felled. 
broken, snapped, as if they're toothpicks, broken by the wind of God, by the power of God, by the voice of the Lord in the storm. As a reminder of the destructiveness of God in judgment. He makes Lebanon and Syrian or Mount Hermon to skip like a calf and young ox. Uh, verse 6. I take these as uh, geographic similes as speaking to an earthquake. That God shakes the wilderness. Isaiah 29.6 from the Lord of hosts. You'll be punished with thunder and earthquake and loud noises with the whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a consuming fire. The lightning of the storm. God also shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. Uh, again, a geographic merism. Lebanon and Hermon are in the north. Uh, Kadesh is in the south, meaning that God controls everything in between. And furthermore, everywhere else, uh, because that's the point of the, uh, of, of the geographic merism. Uh, his voice makes the deer to calve from the terror of the storm. He strips the forest by the voice of his power. That God is sovereign and in command over nature. And the storm is his voice. And these stories uh, speak to judgment. That you and I, if you will, are in very small, little, tiny boats in the Pacific Ocean, if you will. And we can see a great storm coming. And how can we survive in a little, tiny boat? We can't. Which speaks to coming judgment and the provision of God as a place of refuge. So that we praise God for his ability to effect judgment upon all that is false and to remind us of his power in the storm. The great storms whisper to us that God is judge. Now again, I'm not unmindful that uh, storms begin to form off the coast of Africa and they pick up power feeding off the warmth of the oceans until they strike our own coastlands. I am not a meteorologist. I know there are natural laws at work, but the scripture tells us that there's another law at work, that God is in command of it all and summons them as he wills, that nature is not some random event. It is God speaking. It is God whispering to us to be ready for there's another great one coming that he created nature and commands it to display his power as a continuing witness of coming judgment. Uh, Psalm 83.15 So pursue them with thy tempest and terrify them with thy storm, the psalmist says. Another beautiful illustration of the psalmist, Psalm 147. In verse 12, there's a summons to worship God, praise God. The psalmist says, now listen to the reason why. Verse 15, he sends forth his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like a wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts forth his ice as fragments. Who can stand before his cold? He sends forth his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters to flow. 
that all of the false deities of Canaanite religion and Egyptian theology are vacuous and empty. There is no storm god but our God, reminding us of judgment and whispering to us in His grace to get ready to be prepared. Now, there is no question that the Apostle John in the book of the Revelation uh, quotes uh, or alludes uh, very freely uh, to Psalm uh, 29 repetitively. For example, uh, Revelation chapter 10, verses 2 to 4, the Lord comes, stands upon the earth, uh, one foot upon the ground and one foot in the waters. The sovereignty of the Lord, the Lord Christ, uh, the one true Savior. And the text reads, there are seven peals of thunder. Again, no question a reference to the 29th Psalm. And then Revelation 19.6, again, peals of thunder. The context is the second coming. Uh, the coming uh, of the Savior in judgment uh, because he's the God of the storm. The outcome of the storm is that worshipers uh, in Psalm 29, uh, last part of verse 9, the angelic host in the heavenly temple uh, cry glory. Uh, I, I suspect on occasion you've done this. You've, uh, you've seen pictures of a storm, hopefully over Kansas or uh, South Texas, and, uh, and you can see the incredible power of the tornado ripping through uh, towns and cities. And it just kind of staggers you from the simplicity of the power of it. In your own way, you are doing what the angelical worshipers are doing by crying glory. It's the glory of God, the power of God. He simply opens the storehouses of heaven and commands the storms to attack. And they do. It's a function of the will of God. It's the only true storm God. And so the heavenly temple says glory. Uh, I mentioned earlier that you and I as Christians ought to mimic heaven. If heaven cries glory, when we come together to worship the one true God, we should cry continually, repetitively, in different venues, in word and in hymn and in music, glory, the glory of the one true God. Because he alone is the one true storm God. Uh, furthermore, he is king forever. Uh, how can we escape the storm? Second reason to worship God is in the last two verses of the psalm. Uh, the first is because he is the God of the storm. The second is because he enables his people to escape the judgment of the storm. Uh, it's his grace and benevolence as king to his people. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. Notice past tense. He sat as king. The word flood here is only used in the Hebrew Bible of the flood of Genesis 6. The people transgressed. God sent a universal, totally destructive storm upon everyone and everything save one family. 
He caused it and He ruled it by extension. He causes and He rules over all of nature and judgments and all of the laws of nature because of who He is. And furthermore, He is King forever. He sits as King forever. Never to be displaced by the vagaries of time and circumstances, for He is sovereign over all. And He will bless, the psalmist tells us. Uh, He will bless and give strength to His people. And He will bless His people with peace. Peace in contrast to the chaos and destructiveness of the storm uh, in verses 3 to 9. There is a beautiful illustration of this in the numerous allusions to the book of Exodus uh, from Psalm 29. Uh, Exodus chapter 9. The children of Israel were living in a place called the land of Goshen. Guess where the storm did not attack? In the land of Goshen. No hail fell upon their houses. No lightning lit up their backyards. Then in the midst of the violence of the destructiveness of the storm, and the mocking of all of the gods of Egypt, God is sending a message to everyone everywhere and certainly the children of Israel that he protects his own from the violence of the storm. A beautiful illustration, is or not, in one of our great hymns. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. The author was an Englishman traveling in the countryside, uh, beset upon by a violent storm, and he hid in some rocks and penned that hymn to remind us that there is one rock of ages, and he is the one simple place of refuge from the storm. The voice of the divine author of Psalm 29, I think, would have us uh, to look at some storms in the New Testament. If you would, turn to uh, to Matthew chapter 8, and uh, verses 23 to 27. Uh, I'm not trying to get you to think that Christians don't get caught in storms. Uh, They do get caught in storms. Because you and I escape none of the vagaries of the fall, Uh, We are just uh, protected uh, from divine judgment. Uh, Matthew chapter 8 and verse 23. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm in the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he himself was asleep. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you timid? Uh, he men of little faith. Then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea. He became perfectly calm. And the men marveled, saying, What kind of a man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Incredible object lesson from the God of the storm in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me tell you how this occurred from the theology of Psalm 29. Jesus in His humanity is uh, very weary. 
So much so that he falls asleep. But before he falls asleep, he commands a storm. Attack the sea. And rile up the fearfulness of my disciples so that they might learn who I am. Which is exactly what occurred. The storm didn't arise by chance. There is no chance. It wasn't bad luck. There is no such thing as bad luck. There's the God of the storm. He commands, and the sea attacks, and the Lord Jesus saves His people by commanding the storm, and it comes to a screeching halt, and the waters are calm. Matthew 14. Verses 22 to 25. And immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he, sat on the, while he sent the multitudes away. And after he sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain and he himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already many stadia away from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking upon the sea. If you take the theology of Psalm 29 and impose it upon our Lord Jesus, he sends his disciples out into the waters, knowing full well that he's going to attack them with a storm. And at some point while he is alone, I don't know what his words were. And my understanding is a little bit of supposition in my voice, uh, but I'm using Psalm 29. He says, storm, go, attack my people in their little boat and terrify them. And the storm stands to attention and salutes and says, your will be done. And the winds and the violence attacks the boat and the disciples are terrified, as they should be. Notice, notice verse 32 of Matthew 14. When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Now we know how the wind stopped. He simply commanded, and the wind stopped. Came to a screeching halt. went from 180 miles an hour to zero at the simple utterance of the command of the Lord Jesus, the God of the storm. And those who were in the boat worshipped Him, saying, You are certainly God's Son. The God of the storm of Psalm 29 is the Lord Jesus. And there are many storms in life. And you and I live in a very fragile tiny boat upon the depths of the sea and there is only one place of refuge and that is the safety of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Acknowledging who He is, the Son of God. Acknowledging that He is the rock of ages cleft for me, the place of safety. So if you're not a Christian, next time there's a tornado, Race towards it. Get out of your car and say, come and get me. 
Come and get some of me if you're big enough and see how you fare against the Lord Jesus. Or do like the weathermen tell us, go to a safe place, middle of your house. If you have a storm shelter, go to the storm shelter. But ultimately when God comes in the last final judgment, there is no safety except the Lord Jesus. And so my question to you, if you're not a Christian, is this. Is it time to surrender in light of the greater storm that is coming to surrender and to enter the only shelter that can withstand the stormy blast, the fiery cold, the sheer terror of the tornado, the hurricane that is going to come in the end time judgment. For all of us that are Christians, the Lord is our rock, our place of safety. Uh, we hide in him. We proclaim him, we worship him, and we cry glory because of who he is. And we every day give thanks that in Jesus Christ, there is the place of safety from the coming judgment. So we worship God for his power and judgment. We worship him for his grace and salvation. Uh, the storm is inevitable. The provision is before all of us. And I trust we have learned from the disciples who are caught in two storms and who learned in the storm who the God of the storm was. And that they believed in hope and found safety and refuge and the only safe port for little boats in all of the world. Jesus Christ, the godly one, who shed his life, his blood for the sins of many, that we might enter that port and be safe. And may God bless us with that safety.